This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of lumbar spine anatomy from the spine section on orthobullets.com. To start off this discussion about lumbar spine anatomy, let's begin with alignment, in particular alignment in the sagittal plane. And what better way to discuss this than talking about lumbar lordosis, which is the inward curvature of the human spine that makes it easier for us to bring the bulk of our mass over the pelvis. Lumbar lordosis is 60 degrees on average with a normal range between 20 to 80 degrees. The apex of lordosis is at L3 and the disc spaces are actually what are responsible for most of our lordosis. Moving on to lumbar osteology, the lumbar spine has the largest vertebral bodies in the axial spine. Components of the vertebral bodies include an anterior vertebral body, a posterior arch, a spinous process, a transverse process, mammillary processes, and a pars interarticularis. The posterior arch is formed by pedicles and lamina. Pedicles project posteriorly from the posterolateral corners of the vertebral bodies, and lamina project posteromedially from pedicles and join in the midline. The lumbar vertebra have secondary ossification centers for mammillary processes, which project posteriorly from the superior articular facet. The pars interarticularis is a mass of bone between the superior and inferior articular facets and is the site of spondylolysis. The lumbar spine has articulations in the form of intervertebral discs and facet joints. Intervertebral discs act as an articulation above and below, and a facet joint is a zygophysial joint formed by superior and inferior articular processes that project from the junction of the pedicle and lamina. As far as facet orientation, facets become more coronal as you move inferior. Now let's talk a little bit about lumbar pedicle anatomy. And as far as landmarks, the midpoint of the transverse process is used to identify the midpoint of the pedicle in the superior-inferior dimension. And the lateral border of the pars is used to identify the midpoint in the medial-lateral dimension. With respect to pedicle angulation, pedicles angulate more medial as you move distal. The pedicle at L1 is approximately 12 degrees angulated, the pedicle at L5 is about 30 degrees angulated, and the pedicle at S1 is about 39 degrees angulated. As far as pedicle diameter, L1 has the smallest diameter in the lumbar spine, while T4 has the smallest diameter overall. S1 has an average diameter of about 19 millimeters. With respect to lumbar blood supply, lumbar vertebral bodies are supplied by segmental arteries. The dorsal branches supply blood to the dura and the posterior elements. Now let's talk about lumbar neurologic structures. With respect to nerve root anatomy, a nerve root exits the foramen under the same numbered pedicle in the lumbar spine and this means that central herniations affect the traversing nerve root and far lateral herniations affect the exiting nerve root. The dorsal rami supplies the muscles and the skin, while the ventral rami supplies the anteromedial trunk. The key differences between the cervical and the lumbar spine is the pedicle nerve root mismatch. So for example, in the cervical spine, the C6 nerve root travels under the C5 pedicle, which is a mismatch while in the lumbar spine, the L5 nerve root travels under the L5 pedicle, which is a match. 
the extra C8 nerve root without a C8 pedicle is what allows this transition. Another key difference between the cervical and the lumbar spine is that the cervical spine has a horizontal anatomy of the nerve root, while the lumbar spine has a vertical anatomy of the nerve root. So because of the vertical anatomy of the lumbar nerve root, a paracentral and foraminal disc will affect different nerve roots, while the horizontal anatomy of the cervical nerve root causes a central and foraminal disc to affect the same nerve root. Other key things to remember about lumbar spine anatomy is that the cauda equina begins at roughly the level of L1. Now let's talk about lumbar pelvic sagittal alignment. And to do this, we need to review the concepts of pelvic incidence, pelvic tilt, and sacral slope. So pelvic incidence equals pelvic tilt plus sacral slope. A line is drawn from the center of the S1 end plate to the center of the femoral head and a second line is drawn perpendicular to a line drawn along the S1 end plate, intersecting the point in the center of the S1 end plate. The angle between these two lines is the pelvic incidence, and it correlates with the severity of disease. Pelvic incidence has direct correlation with the Meyerding-Newman grade, which is a commonly adopted method of grading the severity of spondylolisthesis. Pelvic tilt equals pelvic incidence minus the sacral slope, and to measure pelvic tilt, a line is drawn from the center of the S1 end plate to the center of the femoral head. A second vertical line, parallel with the side margin of the radiograph, is drawn intersecting the center of the femoral head, and the angle between these two lines is the pelvic tilt. Sacral slope equals pelvic incidence minus pelvic tilt, and to measure sacral slope, a line is drawn parallel to the S1 end plate, and a second horizontal line parallel to the inferior margin of the radiograph is drawn, and the angle between these two lines is the sacral slope. Now let's quickly go over some image-guided interventions, which are typically performed using CT or fluoroscopic guidance with a 22 to 25 gauge needle, usually used for injection of local anesthetic and corticosteroid. Selective nerve root injections are indicated for unilateral radicular symptoms and is used for therapeutic and diagnostic purposes. The technique usually involves a transforaminal or an outside-in technique. A facet joint injection is indicated to confirm a facet joint as a pain generator, so this serves as both a diagnostic and as a therapeutic procedure. An epidural injection is indicated for lumbar spinal stenosis. A discography is very controversial, but is used to prove that pain arises from the intervertebral disc, which is known as concordant pain, rather than other sources, which are known as discordant pain. The technique for this involves a small amount of dilute contrast injected into the disc, and the pain response is recorded. Contrast helps assess disc morphology and diagnose annular tears. As far as surgical approaches, the posterior approach involves a posterior midline approach that can be used for P-lifts or T-lifts. A Wilts paraspinal approach is another posterior approach that can be used for far lateral disc herniations or a pars defect. It involves the intermuscular plane between the multifidus and longissimus muscles and is obviously done in the prone position on a Wilson or Jackson table. The incision is 3 centimeters from the midline. 
Superficial dissection involves finding the plane between the multifidus and longissimus muscles and developing it with blunt dissection, while deep dissection involves manually palpating the transverse process. Placing a clamp on a transverse process and confirming the level with a radiograph, dissecting the transverse process above and below, and identifying the pars medially. The dangers of this approach to watch out for is the dorsal root ganglion. A retroperitoneal or anterolateral approach can also be used to access L1 to the sacrum. It's slightly more difficult to reach the L5-S1 disc space this way than the transperitoneal approach. Important things to keep in mind with this approach is that the bifurcation of the great vessels are located anterior to the L4 vertebral body, and the superior hypogastric plexus is a plexus of nerves situated on the vertebral bodies anterior to the bifurcation of the abdominal aorta, which occurs around the level of L4 or L5. And remember that damage to this plexus causes retrograde ejaculation which is a well-known complication of anterior lumbar interbody fusion techniques with a documented incidence of 7 to 10 percent. Indications of a retroperitoneal or anterolateral approach to the lumbar spine include psoas abscess drainage without risk of postoperative ileitis, spinal fusion, biopsy or resection of a vertebral body, or disc replacement. Things to keep in mind for the lateral or trans-psoas approach is that the lumbar plexus moves dorsal to ventral, moving down the lumbar spine, and L4 to L5 is the lowest accessible disc space with this approach, and this approach has the highest risk of iatrogenic nerve injury, with the ilioinguinal and iliohypogastric nerves most likely to be injured at this level. That's all for this review on lumbar spine anatomy. Hopefully that was helpful. Look out for questions related to this topic on this weekend's question session, and hopefully this episode will have prepared you for that review. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets, the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Thanks so much and we'll see you all tomorrow.